Are you? Uh, okay, Todd, 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 This is not going in. <laughs> no, I'm trying to find yeah, this it. Is, this is... I'm trying to find it. <laughs> Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Drowski. How are you, Joseph? A little tired, but excited for the conversation we're about to have. Nah. I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling fulfilled tonight. I, in the last two weeks, I taught both of my daughters how to ride a bike. Wow. Uh, on, uh, with, you know, with no training wheels. And that's, that's just awesome. Yeah. In the step. snow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Some of my kids, I've like had serious doubts if that would ever happen, <laughs> if they would ever be capable. And, uh, and tonight on E, she just popped right up. It was awesome. She's great. Good so, bothering Todd. I'm feeling really happy right now. I can hear it in your voice. And hanging out with a six year old and a seven year old has prepared me for our conversation tonight. <laughs> Well, they're eighth graders, Todd. So I know. <laughs> How's your week been? Uh, it's it's been good. It's been a little little crazy. It's one of those weeks where, as a professor, you step into a room and you just hope you fill an hour, <laughs> <laughs> and you're not quite sure what you're going to do to fill the hour. A little peek behind the curtain of academia. There, sometimes the lesson prep isn't as full and hearty as ideally it would be. <laughs> <laughs> my three-year-old's had a little croupy cough that's kept us up some nights oh and, that's hard i hope I yeah hope that but hey the he conversations turned out sometimes those conversations that were just kind of free-flowing discussion with the class they, they turn out better than a prepped lesson i agree but always prep the lesson everyone professors and 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 students your teachers have always prepped their lessons oh everybody that's ever been in one of my classes knows that i come with copious notes ready <laughs> to read uh, lots of PowerPoint presentations with uh, lots of uh, fine bullet points, some graphs. Yeah, yeah. Those are all things that I find really uh, captivate my students. We did, I just real quick before we get into it, we, one of my classes we were talking about Mouse, and we've been reading a book called Meta Mouse by Art Spiegelman, where <laughs> he just goes in depth on his process and everything. And they have been in awe at how, about how much work and planning <laughs> went into every page. Of yeah. mass. It's, and it's impressive for me. Like I'm, I'm kind of familiar with the process, but reading Spiegelman's description, it's like, Oh wow. <laughs> this, wow. this is a lot of work when you, uh, hold a comic book in your hands. That's cool. All right. Well, uh, today we're talking about Hikaru, Umi, and Fu from volumes one through three of Magic Knight Ray Earth. That your favorite and mine. <laughs> Uh, this manga, uh, is created by Clamp, an all-female creator collective, and was published originally in Japanese from 1993 to 1995. So this is a Japanese comic book. Uh, this was requested by listener and protagonist logo creator Alana when we foolishly and inadvertently called her Alyssa on our podcast. But considering her last request was by far our most downloaded episode of last year, we are happy to read something else she recommends that we have never heard of. <laughs> so <laughs> when she, uh, when she sent the, the request that, oh, I was thinking about having you guys do Magic Knight Ray Earth, I kind of thought, did she leave? A word out of the title there. <laughs> I thought she, maybe she had fallen asleep while writing, while typing the last word or something. <laughs> like magic? Okay. Night? Sure. Ray Earth. <laughs> Did not see that one coming. Yeah. 
Uh, but I'll tell you what, in Japan, this was so popular that it was turned into a video game and two anime series, and, uh, and they wrote a sequel. So uh, I think people that know manga know this, um, this work. Todd, do you know manga? Uh, no. Is this your first manga? Uh, yes. Well, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. I've, um, my son and I read through the, uh, like the manga version of Spirited Away. I don't know if that counts. Uh, sure. Judges? Sure. Yeah. I, I would not count that. No. Okay. No. Okay. okay. Well, Our producer then I have Andrew. never. <laughs> Our producer Andrew is going to be the arbiter of any of these kinds of questions we have. <laughs> so I know the American comic book industry pretty darn well. I've <laughs> spent a lot of my time researching that. And I know. And funding it. <laughs> yes. I funded quite a, quite a bit. Uh, and it's funded me in some instances with my research. Uh, but I, uh, I know just enough about the Japanese manga world to know that I cannot speak intelligently on it, <laughs> on it. <laughs> that it's different enough that there's wholesale differences in the economics, in the style, in, uh, just, just every aspect of creation, distribution, consumption of Japanese manga versus American, uh, comic books that I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> when it comes to manga. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I read, uh, Scott McCloud's understanding comics and he talks a little bit about the differences between like Western comics and, Asian comics, I was really surprised at how jarring it just was. It was jarring to read this. It was not like any other comics that I've read and I have not read nearly as many as you have, but it was, it was very different and yeah, kind yeah, a of lot hard of the, to get into. A lot of the, um, I guess the visual techniques of storytelling, uh-huh. they just have a different set of, uh, um, that's the word I'm looking tools for. Tools that they're yeah, tools that they, that they employ. Um, like the way they show emotion is so different than uh-huh. uh, the way it's done in American comics, and the way backgrounds are used to you know reflect internal things of the characters is just wildly different than what we have in American yeah. comics. It was interesting, uh, and I'm excited to talk about it. I definitely. Uh, you said it was a little hard to get into. Um, and I don't know if it's just kind of like getting up to speed or if it was the story itself. Like, am I getting up to speed in reading manga or is the story picking up pace? Cause I, I definitely like felt more into it as I was going mm-hmm. along, but I don't know how much of it was that me as a reader and how much of that was the story. Yeah. Well, we'll have to dig into it. So this is, uh, I think the, how did we come to the work section <laughs> is pretty quick. Yes. Uh, Alana. Asked us to. <laughs> and we did. And we did. Uh, her wishes are command. Yes. I think our producer, Andrew, has a couple notes about manga in general for us real quick. Yes. We can call it the trivia section uh, Go for, for it. today. So for starters, uh, Clamp is a group of female writers, which currently is just for, and really since 93, is just for. They still write and publish manga. Do they rotate in and out, or is it always the same? Uh, right now, it's just been the same four okay. for for. 20 some odd years. Um, but originally there were 11. There were, there are popular bands that can't make it that long. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I, like, I enjoy their stuff. They've done some very successful things. Um, like some of my early exposure to manga and anime is stuff that comes from them. So a previous guest on the show and my brother, John <laughs> asked, uh, I just said to him, we were going to be doing a manga and he asked which one. And I said, magic, not night rare, rare. And he said, Oh, I haven't heard of that. And then like 30 seconds later, he had responded, Oh, it's my clamp. It'll be good. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like they are very good and, and pretty successful consistently, especially considering they've done a number of different series. Most manga creators that I know of, which I mean, it's not comprehensive, 
but I know, you know, the best and most popular in many cases, uh, they work on one series ever, basically. Really? <laughs> like the, so the mechanics of creating manga are very different from American comic books. They typically publish on a weekly schedule, but not always. It's almost always black and white. It's published in an anthology book with maybe half a dozen other titles together. So it, they might do, this is, you know, a, a anthology book targeted for 13 year old boys. All the stories in there are targeted for 13 year old boys. That's what gets published in there. Mm-hmm. And you get a short chapter, which takes like maybe five minutes to read. Like the chapter is very. Are short. these all like is this anthology is going to be published constantly? So like, are the different stories being phased out? Like one wraps up, but mm-hmm. the other one's only on chapter three of six. And yeah, like that? they they might phase in and out um, periodically, and then they also get collected into their own units afterwards. Okay, which is where we get the three volumes. So these three volumes represent five or no, not five years, two years. Okay, of work probably published either weekly or monthly. In some cases, it's a very breakneck schedule. And they publish like this for a long time. One of one of the most popular manga in the world right now, which is one that I intend to make you guys read for my birthday. Um, <laughs> only called... if we miss only if we mispronounce your name on this. Uh... <laughs> well, Joseph got my birthday wrong, so. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> that counts. Uh, it's called One Piece. It is currently on. So, like the three volumes re- you read for yeah. this, it is currently on volume seventy-seven. We're not reading the whole thing. I think no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'll read. Maybe like three volumes. Is it about um, be- is it about bathing suits? <laughs> no, it's about pirates. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's fantastic, but the seventy-seven volumes represent about fifteen or seventeen years of constant weekly publication by the creator. Wow. Okay. Um, and he has said, "Yeah, I think we're about halfway." <laughs> wow. So his entire career is will be, this, will one be this one story, and it's. It's epic, but you know, they spend 12 or 15 years doing their one story and, and getting it done the way they want to. And they work like a five or six day week, many hours a day. Sometimes they live in their studios. Yeah. Um, they work with a couple of assistants maybe, but sometimes those assistants also live in the studio for two nights a week. Uh, you know, on the one hand that sounds horrifying, but on the other, Todd, I don't know about you, but, um, is the deadline your muse? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh. <laughs> like, do you have a writing assignment uh, or, or like a, a publication that's going to be due in six months and you basically start working on it two weeks before its due date, whenever the due date would be? Yeah, I have a, a theory. It's called the little man theory. Uh, and it's the, the theory goes that. Um, so this is my time. My turn to have a theory. Uh, the theory. <laughs> the theory is that there's a little man that lives inside of me and he knows exactly when, like to the second the latest possible time that I can get started on a, on a project and finish before the deadline. And you will not start a second sooner. No, (laughs) but I also will not start a second later. The little man says it's time to work and I work Yeah, and, uh, and it works out. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's amazing what they managed to get done. And I'm not surprised that most of them aren't in color with that kind of pacing. Um, the publishers are pretty demanding about, getting this stuff in and, and getting okay. the magazine published is pretty impressive. And Clamp is a notable uh, creator group. Okay. Well, Todd, do you want to give a quick version of what uh, readers could find in M- Magic Knight Ray Earth? I almost said it backwards. I was like, wait, does it start with magic or is it night magic? <laughs> magic Knight Ray Earth. Uh, yes. Magic Knight Ray Earth is the story of three uh, girls in Tokyo. Their names are... 
Hikaru, Umi, and Fu. Which uh, I will say right now, I think this is the best trio of names that we've come across on this oh, podcast. No doubt in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so Hikaru, Umi, and Fu are um, they're from different schools. They're on a field trip in the same place. Um, suddenly they are swept up into a magical world in which they have to rescue a, uh, a captured princess adventures ensue lots of leveling up and, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's a, it's, it's a cool story. I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited to hear your summary of this. (laughs) If that sounds interesting. Uh, you can pick up a copy of this on Amazon. We'll have links in our show notes. And uh, if you want to take a break now, you can and pause this and come back later because we are uh, almost ready to go into our long synopsis. But first... Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or, if you're going old school, your MP3 player. Are you ready? Am I ready to provide a full synopsis? Yes. I am. Here we go. Okay. Strap in, listeners. In a magical world, a female figure is crying out for help, asking the magic knights to come and save her world. Cut to Tokyo, 1998, where three eighth-grade girls are all on a field trip in uh, in Tokyo. Actually, there are lots of girls on the field trip, uh, but the the there are three that matter for the story. They don't know each other. They are all from different schools, but they all hear a voice asking for the legendary magic knights to help. And then they're sucked into a magical portal that drops them into the sky of a strange world with things like floating mountains. They notice this as they're falling to their inevitable deaths below. Uh, And a gigantic flying fish comes up and catches them. They land on its back. Cut to a sinister figure looking in some sort of magical viewing glass who sees them and wonders if these young girls could be the magic knights. The flying fish drops the girls on land. They freak out for a bit and then introduce themselves. (laughs) There's Umi... Hikaru and Fu, a short, young-looking man named Guru Clef, who claims to be 745 years old, shows up and tells them that they have been summoned to become the Magic Knights of Legend, and they can't go home until they save this world called Sephiro, or Kefiro. What do you think, Todd? Is it a hard C or... or I think it's a soft C. All right, Sephiro. Sephiro. The sinister guy from before sends a woman named Alcione, or Alcione? Todd, do you have a... I'm going to say Alcione. Alcione, to go and take care of these like girls. Like I know anything about Japanese, but... Yes. <laughs> We're just going to say it with confidence from right now. I'm not going to ask anymore. I'm just going to say the names uh, as, the, as they appear to me. Uh, so the sinister guy from before, he sends a woman named Alcione to go and take care of these girls before they can be trained as magic knights. Guru Clef is uh, telling the girls they need to rescue a princess who disappeared, and since she has disappeared, monsters have been roaming around the world, and basically everything's a lot worse. Uh, he says there's a bad guy named Zagato who kidnapped the princess, so they'll need to, to go stop him. Clef also explains that many people from this world have tried to rescue the princess, but only the legendary knights who come from another world will be able to do so. Clef transforms their clothes into magical armor so they'll have some sort of protection, and then asks them if they know how to do any magic. They do not, uh, which he finds very disappointing, <laughs> as they're supposed to be, you know, love, like, magic ar- knights. Let's describe this armor for one second. So their armor is basically their school uniforms, which are very short skirts and blouses. And, and now like, they are, like... One metal shoulder pad. Yes. And well, and it looks like the skirt <laughs> might be metallic now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
It's um, uh, if I were them, I would say, excuse me. There's some vital organs right in this region. Like some, I would like some. I would like some real armor, please. Uh, a helmet, uh, some concussion padding, some and, and something for, for the vital organ region. <laughs> yes. All okay, right. Please continue. Um, he gives each of them a magic gift, but he says that in Sephiro, magic chooses the user, so he can't control what skills they will now have. Clef shows Hikaru, Hikaru, uh, how to access her power, but before he can help the others, Alcyone arrives. Clef summons a Griffith to take the girls away to someone named Prisia while he tries to deal with Alcyone, but Alcyone summons a pet monster to keep Clef busy while she goes after the girls. While the girls argue that in a video game they wouldn't be expected to take on a foe as strong as Alcyone <laughs> until after they'd played a few levels and gotten some skills, Hikaru summons a fire arrow that does, in fact, take out Alcyone. Then the Griffith drops them off near an empty house. Assuming that the house must belong to Persia, whom Clef wanted them to visit, they march on in. Persia traps them and then realizes who they are and lets them go. She makes weapons. Uh, actually, she makes evolving weapons, which is a pretty cool sounding concept. But she needs a bit of a uh, special mineral to make weapons for the Magic Knights. The girls are going to have to go on a bit of a quest to find this mineral. To help them on their way, they each choose a weapon that she has already made from Prasia's armory. The weapons disappear into gauntlet things that they wear on their hands, uh, but reappear when they are needed in battle. A little Pikachu-like creature called Makona is going to help them find the minerals that they need. We should okay. also whoa, mention whoa. at this point that um, miraculously, we could say, uh, Umi happens to be uh, in the archery club. That's and, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's cool. And Fu... Is in the fencing club at school, so she gets a like a, a fencing um, uh, saber. Saber, thank sa- you. Is it a saber? Is that what the fencing thing is? Well, it's not a foil. Is it an epi? <laughs> uh, I don't know. And uh, and Hikaru does uh, some form of martial arts with her family, so she's like, "Oh yeah, I'll just take a sword. It's fine." <laughs> so, uh, well done, uh, magic gods of Sephira for picking. <laughs> The three girls who know hey, how to ma- use weapons. We don't weapons. know what the qualifications were for the spell. Maybe the spell was looking for an archer, a fencer, and a martial arts expert. Possibly, although when they when they get their uh, their new weapons, their real weapons, they're all swords. This, which this I, which seemed kind of strange to me. I thought that maybe they would have like better versions of what a they had. Bigger, but... better bow. Yeah. Two, two notes. After school clubs are like a big important thing in Japan, so uh-huh. actually a lot of people are. In the fencing or archery clubs. So take okay. your cynicism like it, and it's, shove it, Todd. It's, it's, it's extremely <laughs> common. Like, like, that would be very similar to the two of you having been part of cross-country. Okay. All right. Possibly more similar, more more common okay. than even the cross-country team. And I think the creature is called Mokona. Mokona. Okay. What did Just I say? a pronunciation. No, did I say Makona? Okay, Mokona. Yes. Uh, it's a common recurring character in many of Clamp's stories. Really? Mokona's all over the place? Yes. Well, it's cute, so I understand. I bet <laughs> there's some merchandising options there. Yes, I've read two, and I've heard it pronounced in, in the anime as There Mokuna. is, uh, I, I will tell you, there is a strong uh, push for cute in this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, all right, so we got the Pikachu-like creature called Mokona uh, that is going to help them find the minerals that these three girls need. Uh, let's see. Oh, Hikaru also happens to be able to speak to animals. Yes, Just, Hikaru. That's my next note. Is, tell me that. Tell me that. That's an after-school club. 
Does, does not, that not, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> now, does does she really full on speak, or is it just kind of a I'm good with animals? Uh, yeah, I don't I don't hear her like. She's it's not, not like, like a what's it Kronk at, in uh, Mokina. <laughs> is it Kronk that speaks to the to the squirrel? Yeah, yeah, squeak squeakity squeakers. Yeah, it's not like that. Or, she just says uh, or what? Dory falling down a well? Speaking whale. <laughs> Yeah. We need a- yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hikaru, who's good with animals, bonds with. Oh, now now I'm panicking. Mokina, uh, <laughs> and seems to understand the creature more than Umi and Fu. <laughs> Just in that last sentence, I said the words Hikaru, Makona, <laughs> Umi, and Fu, which I don't get to say often in these recaps. A monster attacks them almost right away. Uh, but using their new weapons, they're able to defeat it and bond with each other. And they, de- they declare themselves sisters. Things are going well for them. But then <laughs> a bigger, more frightening monster appears. And just as they're trying to figure out what in the world they can do, a guy shows up and slices the monster bits. End of volume one. Volume two. They find out the guy is nice and named Ferio. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's looking for some of the same minerals that they are. There's some flirting and some fighting with more monsters. And then Alcyone shows up again, and she badly wounds Umi. Hikaru is accessing more of her magic than before in fighting Alcyone, because she's so worried and upset about Umi being wounded. Uh, Ferio asks if they want help, but Fu says it would be selfish to ask him to help them after all that he's done already. <laughs> So you just watch Hikaru fight Alcyone. Umi wakes up and she sees Hikaru fighting and she wants to help, but her wounds are too much for her. Mokana uh, starts to glow and shoots her with light. And she has a vision of Clef teaching her how to access her magical powers. And when she comes out of that vision, she releases a water dragon at Alcyone and they win the fight. And Umi is all better now. And there's some exposition talk where Ferio says that the princess Emirate uh, served as the pillar of Sephiro. And as the Pillar of Sephiro, she had to play, pray constantly for the planet's war, the world's well-being, and then everything was good. It's but a now really interesting job. Yes. <laughs> but now that she's kidnapped, monsters are appearing in Sephiro. Monsters that come from people's fear. Good magic comes from belief. Monsters and earthquakes and other bad things come from the darkness of people's souls. Exposition done. Ferio kisses Fu on the hand and leaves. And she blushes. A lot. Like, lots of blushing. Lots and lots of blushing. Lots of blushing, lots of hugging. Yes. Lots uh, lot of bodies changing shape. <laughs> like like their sizes, like when they're embarrassed by something, they, they their figures shrink considerably. Yes. As some of the visual uh language of, of manga. Alright, so Alcione is wounded and broken and she returns to Zagato to explain her failure and ask for his help in recovering. But he kills her. I think I think he kills her. It's not uh, kind of like disintegrates her. Yeah, yeah. Then he sends a little boy. <laughs> And I'm going to have to remember that I'm a mature academic and not giggle every time I should say this, but he sends a little boy named Ascot to, to go kill the girls. Um, the girls find the magic spring where the minerals they need are to be found. It's a two dimensional spring. So it only looks like a straight line when they're viewing it from the side, but when they view it from above, they see that it's a full spring of water. Um, they look at it from above and they dive in, uh, but they're split up and each have visions of loved ones attacking them. Hikaru sees her pet dog, Umi sees her parents, and Fu sees herself. So they're having these visions uh, of of these loved ones and the fights are not going well for each of them. They're not willing to really go all in and attack their loved ones. Um, the princess that had summoned them from the very beginning, she appears to them in a vision and reminds them that the ones they love would not be attacking them and trying to hurt them. So <laughs> when that vision ends, 
they attack with full force and defeat the other visions that they were having. And then they claim the minerals that they need. And as they come out of the magical pool, Prisia is right there with them. Uh, and, and she takes the minerals and immediately magically transforms them into evolving weapons. And then the three girls are taken to an undersea castle where Umi goes to speak with a water dragon, the spirit source of her magical powers. While she's doing that, Ascot appears and tells Fu and Hikaru that Zagato has sent him there to kill them all. End of volume two. Any thoughts on volume two before I get into volume three, Todd? Um, I got nothing right now. Okay, volume three. Ascot, again, it's hard to giggle. Not to, not to giggle when you say that there's this big, you know, a big villain is named Ascot. Uh, Ascot keeps summoning monsters uh, that he calls his friends and attacking the girls with them. But the girls keep defeating these monsters. Finally, they realize that the monsters really are his friends. His only friends. He's only helping Zagato because Zagato said that he could hang out with his friends if he helped him. Everyone else in the world hated his friends because they looked so scary. Ascot is seems to be expecting some sympathy for how his friends have been treated. Like after it's kind of a sob story about how he and his friends were always picked on. But then Umi yells at him. Then stand up for them. Your friends may look scary, but they're nice guys, aren't they? What's that worth if you don't believe in them? If there's nothing to be ashamed of, stand up for them when people complain. If you have if you have them work for Zagato and make them do bad things, then they'll be bad guys. Do you want to make your friends into bad guys? <laughs> after this. Um, um, rant, Ascot apologizes, and then Umi apologizes for having hurt his friends. Then her sir, her sword and her armor transform. She has leveled up. This is, that, this scene was so interesting to me. Like, <laughs> it, it just, it, it took me by surprise. Yes. Yeah, yes. 100% the way that agree. she, the way that she handled that and the way that it was resolved, it and was. Yeah, that she just, she just kind of gives a, a, a good chewing out to Scott yeah. that he hasn't been a good friend to his friends. There's a big, big pep, pep talk about being a good friend. And then he goes, oh, okay. And then they're fine. <laughs> Even though he was just trying to kill them. And, and that's when she leveled up. Yes. And then she levels that's, up. That's the experience she needed, not mm-hmm. combat. Yes. And then, uh, after she levels up, she sees kind of a mecha dragon robot spirit body <laughs> that uh, tells her that she's not ready yet, but it will well return described. to her when she is a true magic knight. So they're like, they've, they've gone from, uh, unpowered, you know, neophytes of, of magic to getting some armor and rudimentary swords. And now she's powered up one level, but not to full magic knight level. Mm-hmm. So a villainous woman named Gardena says Ascot has failed, so she'll have to go take care of the girls now. The girls travel to a wind temple on the floating mountain they saw when they were first falling from the sky. Gardena shows up there while Fu is communing with the wind dragon, like Umi did with the water dragon. Fu uh, is willing to die for her new friends, so after she sees Gardena attacking them, uh, she defeats Gardena, uh, who was only there for money. <laughs> and she doesn't really have any heart uh, in the fight. <laughs> and Fu sword and armor power up. And he so guesses again, on what's going to happen now. So strange. Well, they're going to go to a fire temple so that Hikaru can uh, go commune with her spirit. Uh, Zagato sends a great warrior, Lafarga, to stop the girls. Lafarga shows up while Hikaru is communing with a fire spirit called Ray Earth. A little nod to the title of the series. Hikaru fights Lafarga, and in the end, he comes out of a trance, and he remembers that his sole job in this world was to protect the princess, and he feels kind of bad about having attacked the Magic Knights. Hikaru now powers up, and then they all really power up, getting to don the spirits, uh, the kind of mecha spirit armor things, and they go to have a mega fight of doom. I think that that's what they're really called. Mega fights of doom? No, the uh, mega, mecha, mecha spirit, spirit armor, armor things. things. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, so now they're going to go have the big fight with Zagato. Um, while they are having a mega fight of Dune with Zagato, they ask him why he kidnapped the princess when that means the whole world's going to fall apart. Because <laughs> her job is to pray for the world and keep it from falling apart. And Zagato asks why the princess should have no freedom. Why must she be doomed to pray for the safety of the world and nothing else? Then this is actually a, a legitimate question, I think. Yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll be coming back around to this. Uh, then there's lots of fighty-fighty, fight-fight, and explosions, and they defeat Zagato, and they free the princess, and they tell the princess that, hey, we came to this world like you summoned us, and we got some training from Clef, and we got some weapons from uh, Priscilla, and we powered up, and we just killed Zagato for you. And the princess screamed, you killed my beloved Zagato? I hate you. And she lashes out with a lot of destructive force. And the princess starts flickering back and forth between being an armored kind of spirit form and being a young girl that they saw who called them to save Sephiro at the very beginning. Um, she explains in the course of this fight and then not fighting when she's the young girl form of herself. She explains that the princess was supposed to be the pillar of Sephiro and only pray for the world's peace and happiness, but she fell in love with Zagato and she thought she would be happy if Zagato were happy instead of concentrating on the world of Sephiro, which is well outside of her responsibilities as the pillar of Sephiro. So she locked herself into a dungeon to try to forget Zagato. Uh, so she was never actually kidnapped. She had locked herself up to try and uh, forget the love of her life and continue in her duties of just praying for the world, but she failed. So um, she summoned the knights uh, to Sephiro to save the world by killing the princess because the pillar of Sephiro cannot harm herself and no one from the world of Sephiro can harm the pillar of Sephiro. The princess begs for the magic, magic knights to kill her, but they hesitate and then her armored form reappears and attacks and the magic knights defend themselves with fatal power. And the princess dies and is happy in her death that she gets to go be with Zagato now. And then the three girls reappear in Tokyo. The end. We don't know what happens to Sephiro here. It just ends with them being <laughs> zapped back to Tokyo. Okay. Well done. Thank you. Oh, uh, which, which part do you want to circle around back Where to first? Where do off? we begin? <laughs> do you, I, I, I guess, um, do you assume that there will be a new pillar of Sephiro called now that the princess has been killed? I have no idea. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> like, it, do, do you have to have the pillar for that world to survive? That's what it sounded like. And they just killed the pillar. It uh, did. It, it, there's kind of a, it's kind of a like never ending story vibe in here. I, I was thinking a lot about never ending story when you talked about this. <laughs> I'm sorry a, to bring up such a painful, traumatic memory. Such an inappropriate children's movie. <laughs> <laughs> but there is that kind of like the world is disintegrating because yes. because mm-hmm. of this, and the just this kind of strangeness of it all. I assume that they have to have a new a new pillar. I don't know if any of this comes out in the uh, second this the sequel. I've not looked at any summaries, so that's my guess is that we're going to still be dealing with Sephiro in a sequel. Yeah. I don't, Andrew, do you know about that? I don't, I don't know anything about okay. the storyline. Okay. Okay. Um, but I have to say like that ending for me is where like the story really, I guess it, it transformed the story from being kind of the, uh, I mean, I mean, it's following a lot of beats. So they're making jokes about these beats. Like, oh, in a video game, this is what happens next. Oh, you know, if this was a fantasy novel, this is what would happen next. Like, they're, right. they're acknowledging these beats. But then when you get to this finale where the person who summoned them to the world wasn't actually kidnapped, had locked herself up because she was failing in her job. 
and uh, that the villain of the piece is actually asking, as you said, kind of an interesting and valid question. <laughs> like, yes. what kind of existence are we locking this other human or, or I guess, being into? I don't know uh-huh. their, it, what the magical creatures are. Like, it just took the the whole story to a level that I hadn't really gotten from the first two volumes. The first two volumes were... I think interesting and fun and, and, you know, pretty quick reads. Uh, but they hadn't been nearly as thought provoking as, as this third volume was. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Sorry. I was just looking at, um, I was just looking at this, these last few pages here. And I do have to say, I, I enjoyed it. I laughed at the, you know, the references to like, Hey, in a video game, we're not supposed to fight a bad guy this powerful yet. Like we're supposed to beat the low level guys and figure out how, how we use our powers. Yeah, there, it was this really interesting. Um, I'm, I've never been a huge fan of like the Saturday morning cartoons. That there's there's a certain pacing that came into Saturday morning cartoons after I was uh, no longer a child, where it just kind of gives me a headache <laughs> because <laughs> it's all so like fast paced, and I just, I'm a total curmudgeon. I know. It sounds so terrible, but I just, um, it was hard for me to follow the stories because, because everything happened so quickly and, um, action sequences became kind of harder for me to follow. And there was something of that in this where it was, it was, it was just hard for my brain to, to follow the story. The way that the panels are put together required, I don't know, something that was, it was just harder for, in my mind to, to keep up with what was going on. And there's lots of, they use lots of, um, I don't know what the word is, like the sound effects, blink, swoosh. Onomatopoeias? Flash. Oh, but you uh, mean like the, the text being used as like the explanation of the sound that's going out from an action. Blaze, shoom, blaze. Ah! I mean, it's just like every page, every page is full of these thud Ah, Hikaru, boom, um, kaboom, but but a boom. <laughs> I, I will say the fight sequences, like I did not stop and dwell on them. Like I, I was skimming yeah. through the fight sequences more. It it kind of felt like um the I mean you you're using the Saturday morning cartoon touchdown, but to me it almost feels like the uh the early and mid two thousands fight sequences in like a board movie or in like Batman Begins, where it's like you don't know what's going on and you're not really supposed to know what's going yeah, on. So I yeah, just kind of I endure it until we're we're through. <laughs> right. And, and then I expect the you know the narrative to pick up and I see who's standing and who's down on the ground. <laughs> yeah. So there's that so there's that element of it. And then there's this other um element where it, it really is like these eighth grade girls kind of, you know, freaking out and blushing and hugging and, like, we're best friends now, and it's so different from... Well, again, yeah, the, the visual iconography that's used to communicate all of those is so different from American comics. So, like, uh-huh. the, the shape of their faces change, the size of their bodies change, um, they they become almost like uh, Looney Tune characters sometimes, and, in in like, the way some exaggerated features happen. Or, like, Peanuts characters or something. It's... Press the style worth. changes so dramatically, and I don't know, Andrew, do you know, is it one writer that's writing this consistently throughout, or are they, like, two different writers? I don't I don't know how... Uh, I mean, artists. I don't know how Clamp would do it, but that's pretty typical of yeah, Japanese. Yeah, that's the way. Yeah, it's sure. just a different visual um, language. And it's, it's worth noting that the main influence in the development of manga is from the American occupation and the... Um, comics that were available to soldiers in, okay. at the end of World War II, and including a lot of Disney and cartoon-based, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, 
Looney Tunes mm-hmm. and the Daffy right. Duck and and Mickey and all of that sort of stuff with that comic effect. Yeah. And so that's been heavily adapted into uh-huh. their style. And it's it's very prevalent. It's very common. You'll see it when you read sure. other ones. Yeah. Okay. It's just interesting that from that kind of common ground, American uh, comic book language really like there's divergent paths between yeah. how manga developed from there and how American comics continue to develop where we, in our industry, it kind of left things quite segmented. Uh, like children's comics will do this and, you know, superhero comics will have this kind of look and, right. and there's the less blending though. I guess in recent years, there's actually been a little more, um, I guess, interchange of, of different style artists for a long time. There was like house styles for Marvel and DC that you kind of had to line up with those. Uh, and it seems like kind of everything got taken in to, you know, storytelling techniques for whatever the story was in Japan. Whereas we kind of said, this is the tools for telling these kinds of stories uh, in America. Like the genres develop their own mm-hmm. visual languages. And typically manga have a creator who is the writer and artist. Um, and they have some assistants who help with backgrounds or, or maybe duplicating some characters. I don't know how it works with clamp, but that in and of itself is very different from American comics, which have a generally a writer and another person who's the artist well, and possibly another person who's the colorist or the inker. Or- and, and with American comics, they're often working with, you know, corporately owned properties where there's like, uh, editors that are saying, no, you can't do that to this character. <laughs> you know, you can't go that far field. You can't, you know, permanently damage it. Like you got to put the toys back in the sandbox at the end, uh, with American comic book stories in a lot of ways. Uh, whereas with, with manga where they're telling their own self contained story within the universe that they're building themselves, they got, a lot more free reign to, to evolve and change things. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm to get back to my earlier point. So we have these, this, uh, visual style that was kind of hard for me to get along with kind of a tone that felt just kind of foreign to me. This, this eight, eighth grade, like, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, and then, <laughs> It took me a while to realize, actually, you know what? There's some really interesting stuff going on here with storytelling. Um, and, and there were moments, I thought the, I thought the, the, the fountain thing was really interesting. Oh, where it was the two dimensional fountain? Yes. <laughs> I loved that. And I where... was like, wait a second. Like that's a, that's kind of a sophisticated idea. Um, and, and it was, it was cool. So uh, uh, yeah, the it, idea it... of the, um, the ev- uh, evolving weapons, Yes. I thought it was yeah. interesting. And the evolving armor. And yeah, the evolving armor. Um, this kind of playfulness with the idea of video games and like RPGs and the kind of self-aware nature of it, I thought was cool. Um, and then the end, then they just drop this big like philosophical bomb on you. And you're like, wait, a what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. Uh, and well, well, and also so it's cool. It's, uh, in some ways, like uh, the, we mentioned before we started recording, like some of the exposition feels... I, I don't know if it's translation necessarily or, or, mm-hmm. or whether, I mean, we, we need to acknowledge we're not reading this as it's originally intended <laughs> and reading the translation and, uh, yeah. and, and other things, but the, some of the exposition, exposition was a little on the nose and that includes some of the, the development of themes. So like the importance of their friendship, it was like right. reiterated every time, <laughs> you know, they, and you're my best friend. Remain. No, you're my best friend. Oh, when we're, we just barely knew each other and now we're best friends. And it's like, and, okay, and it gets mentioned in all three volumes. Friends. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which not a bad theme, <laughs> but it started to feel a little, uh, a little too much of, of that being, um, given to us as readers. But like you said, this, there's this big bomb at the end that to me just transforms the whole work and uh-huh. is, 
um, such an interesting concept and one that I had never encountered something along those lines before. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it does end with the very final image is the three of them embracing. And it's, it's in this kind of more serious style where, I mean, I think that that's one of the key points here is about friendship and sticking together. Uh, I don't know. I wish I knew more about the, like the socio-cultural background of this, but you get the impression that these three girls are from vastly different worlds. Um, that they and, would not have been friends. No, they never would have been friends. And Fu is like like supermodel pretty, and uh, Hikaru is kind of like a tomboy. She's shorter, and uh, Umi is kind of a nerd. Like she wears glasses. Which means, of course, she's a nerd. Yes. Because Classic she wears, symbol. She wears glasses and she likes math. So, I mean, what else do you need to know about her, really? <laughs> that defines so many characters in 1990s sitcoms. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, and then to, to have it all end with this, this really great image of them all hugging each other is, is sweet. I, yeah, I, I think it's cool. But let's, let's talk about this ending. Okay, so let's um, I, let's take apart Zagato first, I'd say, and then the princess. Okay, okay. So all this time, through two-thirds of the story, we, we're being told Zagato kidnapped the princess. Uh, and we, like, all the images that we get of him are, you know, the kind of sinister backlit, uh-huh. <laughs> shadowy figures that's, you know, kind of voyeuristically watching the adventures. Uh, and you know, sending bad guy after bad guy after bad guy. It's a very, it's a very like Wizard of Oz, Wicked Witch of the West kind of. Yes. Like looking in the crystal ball and then sending like I'll get you, and then sending out the next, the next version that you know the next monster. And he does uh, so. I guess real quick, the uh, it's kind of worth noting though, like the these three minions that he sent out all mm-hmm. had different motivations for helping him. So Alcione was in love with him. Yes. Uh, clearly not requited. <laughs> when he disintegrates her. When he totally blasts her when she comes back. Oh, uh, and then Ascot just wanted a place where he could hang out with his friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then, uh, what's the name of the, la- the third one? The one that just wanted him. Gardena. Gardena, yes. She was being paid. And, and so, Dazzler. Um, That's I just think she's Dazzler. <laughs> Uh, and so we have, it's not, um, like the classic kind of like ideological villain that is drawing his minions to him for these various reasons or whatever it is. Like they, you, you get this kind of mixed bag as to why these people are helping him. Uh huh. But then we find out like his motivation, I, I guess we, did we ever have a clue as to what his motivation was before? Just no. being a bad guy is kind yeah, of what? Yeah, he was, he was an evil guy and so he kidnapped the princess and... They they even they approached him or, or at some point they they tried to talk to him and say what are you doing don't you realize that you're going to destroy the world isn't there there's yeah, a yeah, there's a during, point it's, where it's during the big fight yeah and they say you're going to destroy the world and and, and we're like I, I mean I, every reader I think agrees with them at that point like uh, hello <laughs> if you take away the pillar whose only job it is to pray for the you know peace and harmony of this world and you lock her up then you're going to destroy this world. Why did you kidnap Princess Emerode? Isn't she the pillar that supports Sephira? If she doesn't pray for Sephira's peace, this world will come apart. Why must the princess pray for uh, Sephira's peace? This is what he says. And they go, huh? 
Why must only Princess Emerald pray for Sephiroth's peace? Silver death, rumble, whoosh, thum, ag. What do you mean? <laughs> Sephiroth's pillar has no freedom. She may only pray for the safety of the world. Why must Emerald live changed to the fate of the pillar? And then night explosion, etc., etc., etc. Yes. All right. So, like, that's our insight into his motivation is right there. Um, so is, is, I guess the implication is he is as in love with the princess as she reveals later on that she was with him, correct? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 at this point, it seems like he's acting as much out of a sense of justice as it is a sense right, of love. I was say, so if he's in love with her, what's his end game at this point? Is it to let the whole world be destroyed so that she doesn't right. have to hold it up anymore? I think I think it's a valid question. What is his end game? And I don't really know. Uh, they seem to have some belief in an afterlife because once he's dead, she says, "Just kill me so that I can go mm-hmm. and be with him." So maybe his end game is, yeah, like let's let the world burn, and we'll if we die, then we'll be together anyway. Right. But at least she won't be chained to this place. Why? Well, uh, I, I think I mean just as the pillar only praying for peace and harmony. Yeah. So, but it's, then, it's, then really, yeah. it's a very interesting, uh, thought for me. The interesting thing here is like this self sacrifice, right? So is it, I mean, is that okay that that's her job yeah. <laughs> just to pray for peace and harmony? And that's all she does. And she has no freedom at all. Um, there is no other alternative. As far as we know, somebody has to do that. So has he explored any alternatives besides letting the world be destroyed? <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> like, know. Is there, is there a gray area where can a team of people, you start doing shifts <laughs> praying, right? Like maybe everybody could pray instead of yeah. one person. Right. So maybe if we all prayed for peace and harmony, then this one person wouldn't have to do it all the time. Well, And I guess if, uh, so my, my question, but it doesn't seem that no, that's an no, option. But, but my question for Zagato, which, I guess maybe this ambiguity about what his end game is makes this an unanswerable question is why does he keep sending out these minions to stop the magic knights? I think that's, I think that's a really good question also, because if his end game is I'm going to free her so that she doesn't have to be the pillar and pray for the peace and harmony of this world, then he has to know that the world will be destroyed and him with it. So, he doesn't want them to well, come. Well, I guess maybe he thinks they're going to come kill him, and she will remain as the pillar. So that he hasn't had a conversation with her about. <laughs> this is really this is this is a perfect example of one of those stories where, like, if everybody would just sit down and, and talk it out. So, so if he and the princess <laughs> really, who are in love with each really other, maybe maybe get talked, and she said, "I'm going to summon the knights so that they can kill me." And and he could have said, well, fine, they'll just kill me and we'll be together in the afterlife because that's what I'm actually shooting for by destroying the entire world anyway. Yeah. Because he's just kind of prolonging it, I guess, by stopping the knights. But he doesn't, I guess maybe his fear is that the knights are going to come kill him and the princess is going to have to keep praying forever. If she had just... But she's not, she's not praying No, because the world's falling apart. If she had just not summoned the knights... Would the world still have fallen apart and Zagato's... Oh, man. If she just stopped praying, this is no really praying. this is really unraveling. This is really unraveling like pretty quickly. I know Clamp. I know Clamp has uh, quite a reputation, but what's the, what's their target audience here? Probably not no, us. But I, again, I I love these ideas that are presented. But as we're trying to walk through like the 
the realistic logistics of it and not the abstract ideas that are presented by this piece. Right. I guess the, like, trying to see how these things would really play out, it, it does start to unravel. But I love the big ideas that were being given still. So... So I, let's take a step back and do something that uh, sometimes I do with my students where you ask the question, what is this about? And I mean, you told us the plot yeah. already, but like if you were to say, you know, one word or I give you three words and I, and you have to say what, like, what is this story about? What's at the heart of this? What would you say? Uh, relationships. Okay. And I've, I, I do have to ahead. say though, I'm. Like I say that because things were hinted at, but I'm not sure I came away with the final answer, particularly when they're in the two dimensional spring and they have the fights with their pet, their parents and themselves. Like I'm right. I'm not hundred percent sure what I'm supposed to take away from that. I think it was Umi that had the fight with herself. Umi and fights she's herself, the one that yes. like later on she said she says specifically like, and I need to learn to care for myself more or something like that. So, like, uh-huh. so she's part of the relationship that she's working on seems to be a lack of confidence within herself. That part of the story is, you know, just as a reader, you get the sense, okay, this is really important. When they're, um, with, like, the visions, like, you, you're searching the, for... Yeah, when they're having the visions, they're fighting, they're fighting themselves, there's something and, of, and the thing is, though, that I couldn't quite get the same thing for all of them, which doesn't mean it's bad. It's so packed, well, it's so packed with symbolism, like, this... I mean, the mirror, like the idea of the mirror and the pool of water and like going into it. It's very like Lord of the Rings ish. Um, in some ways it's very like, um, uh, almost like mirror of Erised. And there's something about, about it. It just, it seems so full of these images that we know are important. And so in the back of your mind, there's this nagging, like, oh, I know that this is important, but you try to like pull it apart and it becomes difficult. Yes, because I, like, I, I, I feel like I got the most out of Umi fighting herself and kind of being her uh-huh. own worst enemy, but I didn't necessarily understand what the, you know, the favorite family dog. <laughs> but even, but even that, like Umi fighting herself, the solution to that was not stop fighting yourself. The solution was just realize that that person is that you're you? fighting is really it, it's and not you and so you should out. totally just crush it <laughs> yeah <laughs> right so it's like it, it, it there is a philosophical point to be made but i don't think they i don't think they make it like i don't think that they follow all or the way is through it just on that it. they don't make it the way we have kind of come to expect it, it to be made is that the problem it's entirely possible i mean we're both we're both dealing with a culture that's really different from our own and, and also and narrative the traditions that like we recognize some of them, way. but there's also, as we said, a lot of narrative aspects of this that are just quite foreign to us, but commonplace for other readers. Right. I, I want to say that just as you've been talking about and how her fighting herself was the impactful part of that, the other most impactful thing that you described in, in the synopsis was, um, chewing out Ascot. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I do want to say yeah. that. So, so those were the two things that struck me as like, which is again, it's about, I don't know what's going on, but I need to like, I need to deconstruct something about this. Like my brain is attached to those moments, probably more than anything else. In, and that, in the story. that is a monologue yeah. about relationships too. I, that one. And yeah, and as absolutely. Said, like, the final image is these three people, these three girls that didn't know each other before and probably would never have been friends, like embracing as friends, the big, 
reveal of the finale is that uh, Zagato is doing this out of, uh, like you said, a love and justice kind of a mix. But but you know the, he it does seem like there's love for the princess, and the princess was failing in her job because of love, um, and and uh-huh. being allowing you know herself to experience something that uh, was outside of the the responsibilities that she had. And Zagata was kind of trying to free her from that. So, so for me, like when you said, what uh-huh. is this all about? It's relationships, but I'm not sure it's about like a nicely kind of UC Timmy sum up of what we're supposed to take away from it. Just that's the theme that I see being woven through a lot of these set pieces. Yeah, I agree. It's yeah, it has to be that has to be at the core of this. But again, it's really hard to unravel it all and and come up with like a nice. <laughs> I mean, for, for as many, like, you're my best friend. No, you're my best friend. No, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't let you kill them. I'm going to sacrifice myself for them. Like, it's so obvious what's going on. But then when you try to break down any one of these pieces, it's like, whoa, it's kind of yeah. slippery. You got a couple minutes left. Can, can you break down the friendship monologue? About oh with Ascot yeah and the monsters <laughs> yes because so, you've you've teased talking about yeah. that like four times now yeah so that is probably my favorite part of the entire thing I I guess I said it all changed for me in volume three with these big reveals at the end but I guess there was a a, a speed bump of saying whoa this is different with volume two with the the fight with Ascot yes um so they're having this fight and it doesn't end in the traditional like well, I've I've beaten you it literally is like just oh I see where you're coming from. But where you're coming from is like the way you're act- you're acting out from where you're coming from is wrong. <laughs> you, uh-huh. so, so I see your worldview, but let me tell you something: um, you, you still need to behave differently than just you know hooking up with the bad guy and and doing his bidding. Because your whole point mm-hmm. of view of what's kind of poisoning you to this world is you're feeling that no one realizes that you you and your friends aren't bad guys. But in order to kind of correct that, you've become bad guys. Uh-huh. Which I'm not bad guy. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> um, which I, I think is, we, we see line from Oh, you haven't seen Wreck It Ralph. Joseph hasn't seen Wreck It Ralph. <sighs> I've seen three quarters of it. I, I had it on. I just wasn't able to give it full attention. <laughs> which one Just because I am bad guy does not mean that I am bad guy. Which of the girls delivers the monologue? <laughs> Umi. It's Umi, right? So is Umi coming out as like the favorite character? Does she have the best moments? See, I expected this moment to have, to be with uh, Hikaru because she's the one that bonds with animals right away. Yes, and yeah. so I thought she'd be the one that would recognize. Oh, this is just a guy and his okay. pets, and you know, it's you know, instant bonding and friendship. But it was it was Umi who did that. So yeah, I'd say Umi probably has some of the most significant moments throughout. Water dragon, healing wind. <laughs> I really you're, am you're looking for this. A I'm very not just... different soundtrack in the background. <laughs> Than our usual episode. Thank you for fighting that crazy witch. We're all best friends. We just met, but you two are like sisters to me. If I'd been summoned to Sephira alone, I'd be so lonely. But because of you two, I can fight on. Just think of our friendship. Give just thinking of our friendship gives me strength. <laughs> now again, uh, some of this may be translation issues. Not a lot of us. Yeah, yeah, but, in but this. some of this Where may be taking like some. You? Well, well, uh, like in the word balloons that I, that we, like some of these are giant word balloons that then get like four words in them. So yes. there's probably some pretty complex <laughs> ideas that are being summed condensed. up and condensed. And, and the translation skills in the last 20 years for manga specifically have exponentially increased. I'll, I'll tell you a fun fact. There is 
one section of physical bookstores that is not shrinking in the world today, and it's comic books and manga. Oh. Specifically manga. There is, in, in our Barnes & Noble, it is upgraded to two big shelves on two walls. Like, it is dominated a whole corner, and it is edging out the, the physical comic books yeah. from America. It's the it's one of the only things that grows in physical bookstores. Okay, right, here we go. Got the um, here. Well, no, I've I found a Ascot. <laughs> All right, well, I think I transcribed most of the monologue into the script. All right, so when they're fighting Ascot, uh, Umi like realizes that the monsters he keeps releasing them are, at him are are pets to him, and he he has a fondness for them, and so she yells at him. Uh, then stand up for them. Oh, well, I guess he, he's just kind of said, well, I, no one likes my pets. Everyone thinks they're scary monsters and they treat us badly. And then she yells at him, then stand up for them. Your friends may look scary, but they're nice guys, aren't they? That's what, that's, uh, what's that worth if you don't believe in them? If there's nothing to be ashamed of, stand up for them when people complain. If you have them work for Zagato and make them bad, uh, do bad things, then they really will be bad guys. Do you want to make your friends into bad guys? <laughs> and at this point, he's just like a small, child that's looking ashamed down and he's like i'm sorry <laughs> um so there's a couple of things uh that need to be pulled uh, i think we can we can take out of there um one like his failing is that from the beginning he didn't stand up for his friends that mm-hmm. uh if they're being bullied you need to stand up against the bullies if you think they're nice guys and people aren't seeing through their exterior you need to do that uh then you need to make them see it. Uh, this idea that his, she's kind of telling him his friendship is worthless like you're saying that they're your friends, uh, but if they're if they're nice guys, um, what's it worth for you to know that if you don't believe in them and stand up for them? Yeah, it's friendship is is not about Affection. like saying who your friends yeah. are. It's about the way that you treat them. And in this case, not just that you treat them nicely, but that you stand up for them, that you care enough for them that you'll do the uncomfortable thing. Uh, and, uh-huh. and not just retreat, which is what he, he he's done with his friends, is they've all just kind of retreated and closed off from the world and kind of let some simmering hatred for the world form. I'm just looking at the very beginning of this. So at the very beginning of Volume 1, you've got the princess saying, help, help, save our world. And then which, we see Which, by the way, these... it's key, like, you don't notice it then, but it's key that she says, save our world, not save me. Yes. And then, uh, and then we've got... She's saving the world by dying. I guess we don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think we. Ha- I think we can agree that Wait, maybe Volume Two has logic, some answers to these questions. The logic of the story at this point is not completely sound. I mean, can we say that? Uh, well, at least with the information we're given in, this, in these three volumes, yes. Maybe some of these okay. get wrapped up and explained in the next, you know, in the sequels. So it's 1998. Uh, uh, add. Oh, AD 1998 at Tokyo, at the Tokyo Tower. And Hikaru is looking out this telescope and she's really excited that they're on, on this field trip. And the girls in her class are like, nice choice for a field trip. Yeah, really. Our school sucks. And I'm like, hey, Hikaru, you're totally weird because she's really enjoying this. And then she runs out of money and Umi comes along and gives her money. So that she can keep looking in the thing. And oh, and then what happens with... Oh, and then they see... And then she sees um, Fu's class. And they say, it's all rich girls from snobby families. Look at her. She's gorgeous like a model. Even prettier than a model. And then bam, bam. So we don't really get much of Fu's character. 
in this first part. She just is uh, really pretty, and she's from this really rich school. But but Hikaru, we get the we get the impression that Hikaru is like a really enthusiastic student, and that she has a good at atti- like a generally positive attitude about things, and that Umi is really nice and and you know willing to give uh, Hikaru a her money. That, you know, she's never met before to a stranger. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was just, I, as you were reading, as you were reading that, the thing about Ascot and your friends and, friends, and the way friends that you, really should do for each other. Right. And that even if, even if your friends are weird, you should stand up for them. And Hikaru is kind of the one I think in here who is, she's kind of weird. She's shorter. She's more of a tomboy. Um, but also Umi is kind of weird. Because she wears glasses and she likes math, and we know we all we know plenty about people like that to know that they're weird. So, I mean, and f- it, so is it? I wonder. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm wondering at this point is is it something about Fu? Is Fu the one that in that setting? Fu's the one that has to that has to stand up and protect the friends when they're going to be killed. Well, didn't they all? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Like when they're when they're powering up. They all commune with their well, spirit, a, and then there's uh-huh. always a bad guy that's attacking the other two. And the one that's commuting always kind of yeah, comes in. Yeah, there's one point. There's one Hikaru point where is the biggest one, isn't the she? Ba- the bad guy is saying, "The bad guy is saying, uh, stop protecting your friends, and and like you could still save the world. You could still save this world. You could go save the princess, but you have is to it, sacrifice your friends." And she says, one? "I'm not. I'm not going to sacrifice my friends." Is it? He, is it? He I think it is in the, in the fire temple. Okay. Okay, well, scratch that theory. <laughs> but, um, well, regardless, I mean, they're all different, and they all come together, and we get this impression that that they have learned this lesson about it doesn't matter if you're different, you come from different schools, uh, and you're into different things. And at the end of each of these volumes, they have these little character... Card sheets, um, kind of. Yeah, like summaries, almost like baseball cards or something. Where they'll say this is their favorite food. This is what they like. This is what they don't like. This is um, this is their favorite thing in school. This is their least favorite thing in school. And they're all really different, like intentionally very different from each other. So in this discussion of relationships, at least in their relationship, and also in this thing that we get with Ascot, there's something about like appreciating the difference in other people and. And not letting that get in the way of your happiness or your ability to have a good relationship with them. Well, and again, that the the relationship isn't just feeling affection and expressing affection; it is doing those actions that demonstrate it. Right. And I think that's probably the most. Whenever they power up, it's because they've done that. That they. Although there is plenty of uh, express uh, expressing with words yes. affection, but whenever they power up, it's because they were willing to sacrifice themselves for their friends. Um, yep. You know, they. they convince Ascot to kind of back off because he realized he wasn't doing that and he should do that now. Um, uh-huh. and, but, th- but then we still have this, this, this finale where it's, you know, in some ways they're willing to let the world die around them to be together. <laughs> but is that what friendship is? Is that what a relationship is? Yeah. I don't, I don't get the impression that, um, clamp is holding up the relationship of the princess and Zagato as, 
exemplary. It's not healthy for them or anyone else. <laughs> it's really, it really is not. But in that case, but is it, so I guess uh, here's the, here's my final question for us to wrap up on: Should the princess have ignored her feelings for Zagato? Like, was would that have been the better choice? I guess she tried do and the, failed, and that's what's causing do the uh, do the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. I mean, it seems like that's what she's what she's saying is my needs are more important than the needs of this world, and I need freedom, and I need to love this boy. And so I'm willing to give up this responsibility and let my world burn. <laughs> I, 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 it doesn't seem, I don't know. But I, 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 don't know I guess a ton the, about. the answer to that final question, again, maybe we need to know more in the sequel. Like it, when she, if she dies, does another pillar get called automatically? And it, I guess is she now cursing someone else for that? But is the world going to be safe? Is, is that going to be the, the, the next stage? And does she know the world know. would be safe if she died? And in fact, by her trying to do this and failing, she's condemning the world. So that's why she, I wish Alana, she summons them in. I wish Alana were here. She would know. <laughs> she would. <laughs> Alana, please tell us. Our producer Andrew has a couple corrections before we wrap up this episode. Yeah, it looks like it was Umi who gave the speech to Ascot. We but, had that right. But Fu was the one who fought herself. I was wrong on that. Or, or I might have had it right in the summary, but wrong in our discussion. Yes. So, so you- it wasn't... It isn't was, Umi? Isn't Umi the one with the glasses? No. And Fu? Wait, really? Umi's the the one with the with the long hair. All right, listeners. I fear the specifics of our discussion may have gone astray <laughs> at any point <laughs> during during this. But no, the larger ideas we're trying to tackle and dissect that's still valid. <laughs> we just may have misnamed a protagonist. <laughs> it, uh, yes, yes, it's. Uh, and again, we might have had it right at some points and wrong at others. <laughs> that's that's the real rub with this. Well, Todd, on that note, uh, do you have any final thoughts? <laughs> oh, it, I just think it, it, that it's ironic that the reason why... I mean, if you think about it, the reason why we're discussing this is because we messed up the name. <laughs> One wrong... And... I mean, well, I think we need to admit that we have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so we've already apologized to Alana, and I guess we owe Clamp, Foo, and <laughs> we owe Foo and Umi an apology. Umi an apology as well. <laughs> if they would like to request <laughs> a, a specific Uma. story for us to <laughs> massacre. <laughs> um, well, I guess my my final thought. Uh, we kind of said like some of the specifics of this kind of unravel. And again, there's another chapter of the story that we haven't dissected, but I was really intrigued with a lot of the big ideas that are being introduced in this manga. So for that, I am glad that Alana requested that we read this. Yeah. And I don't, I think that my experience with this is similar to my experience with uh, a lot of new things that I come across where initially it's kind of hard to get into, but once I do, I go, wow, this is actually kind of cool and interesting. And um, so I liked it in the end. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty delightful. Um, made me think about some, you know, deep things. And, and it's always great to be exposed to something that's just new and different. And um, it's one of the things that I love most about this podcast is that I <laughs> pretty much every week, there's something new and different for me to explore. Um and this was one of them, but I, I don't regret it at all. I'm, I'm really happy that we did. 
I'm sorry that we messed up Fu and Umi's names. <laughs> so <laughs> I really am. I hope Alana wasn't yelling at her earbuds. Come on, guys. <laughs> Get it right. Get it right. If we if we suddenly go back to our white microphone logo, <laughs> that we we burned one too many bridges with Lana. But thank you again, Lana, for suggesting this, and also for suggesting our earlier episode on Gunner Creek Court. Uh, if you hadn't heard that episode, please go back and listen to it. I, I, it was another instance of us kind of being introduced to a new work and just dumping it, uh, jumping in, and and I think having a, a really good discussion about it. Yeah. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us. And you can subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes, and please leave us a review there. We're holding steady. I'd like to see that number bump up, people. So please go leave us a review there. Uh, it helps to spread the word about our podcast. And links to things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com, and you can also find a list of all of our previous shows there. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss, and as you've seen, we're really good at just... <laughs> discussing characters that neither of us know terribly well. Um, but you can just uh, suggest any characters or stories for us to discuss or give us comments or corrections, perhaps, by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or you can also let us know about any corrections on our Facebook fan page, which is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. There'll be a post there about this episode and you can let us know uh, what we got right or what we got wrong in this. And we're all also on Twitter. You can follow us at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mac, and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And Todd, my computer has frozen. Would you like to tell our listeners how they can support us? Uh, if you like the show and like to support us financially, there are a few different ways you can do it. Uh, if you want to buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation for the show with a monetary donation, you can click the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Uh, also, don't forget to take advantage of great deals from Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash deals or by making purchases through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where Hold each week <laughs> okay i will hello everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character and a great story i'm todd mack <laughs> and that is silence <laughs> i forgot how we do this all right uh, let me focus so that you could kill me i summon the legendary knight so that you could kill me before that roar thum princess emerald whoosh Flicker, magic, schwup, thrust, ah, dash, oom, wish, <laughs> like, ah, I'm going to go crazy, slash, light attack, light attack, fire arrow, drag, water dragon, swoosh, <laughs> it's like, oh, man, magic knights, magic knights, Badoom. light, spiral, shoom, Emerald, please be free. Sk, sh, whoosh, flash, badoom, 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 badoom. <laughs> Night explosion. We can't give up. We're going home to Tokyo together. Zagato, 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 badoom, badoom, badoom. Zagato, magic knights, magic knights. Now we can do what Princess Emerald asked us to do. We've revived the spirits. Now we can save. We're going back to Tokyo. Let's go, Umi Fu. She's in that castle. Okay, gasp, splash.
Silver death. We won't give up. We won't lose. Why did you kidnap her? The power of her will. Use your magic heart. Your skills. Roar. Ice blade.